Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Jonathan Sakia. My guest today is Peter Samuelson. Although not a healthcare professional in the usual sense of the words, he's done more to improve health than most of us doctors. To follow what I mean, hear how the World Health Organization defines health. Health is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being, not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. And further, the health of all peoples is fundamental to the attainment of peace and security and is dependent on the fullest cooperation of individuals and states. Peter Samuelson is a force of nature in endeavouring to achieve these goals. We met many years ago when I was helping care for a, a young lady who was tragically nearing the end of her life. And she told me that one of the things that saddened her was that she would miss the new album and tour of her favorite singer. The next morning, watching early morning TV while scoffing my breakfast, I saw an interview all about a charity, the Starlight Foundation, and the work they did. I contacted them, spoke with a delightful lady who arranged for the aforementioned singer to visit my patient bringing her immense joy. And the starlight lady introduced me to the founder of that charity, yup, Peter Samuelson. And that led to a friendship and pro-social collaboration that have endured. Peter and I both grew up in North London, not that far from each other, but he went off to Cambridge University and studied English and his education continued with an executive program in management from the Anderson School of Management at the University of California in Los Angeles, or UCLA, and a mergers and acquisitions certificate from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Peter landed in Los Angeles working in the movie business. More of that later. In fact, Peter comes from a family with a rich filmmaking heritage. His father, Sir Sidney Samuelson, was a World War II cameraman who incidentally filmed the coronation of Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth in 1953. He built a film equipment company and was the UK's first British film commissioner. And Peter's grandfather, George Berthold Samuelson, was a pioneer of the silent movie era. Peter's business has been that of movie maker, producing and working on some wonderful pieces of art across all genres. For instance, he made Revenge of the Nerds, which I think most people have seen or know about, Tom and Viv, Wild, Arlington Road, a superb suspense film, by the way, a kid's spy film, and about 20 others. Peter served on the founding board of Participant Media, Jeff Skoll's pro-social media company, and now repeating that experiment as president of Aspire, the Academy for Social Purpose in Responsible Education, whose undergraduate courses have been successfully piloted at the aforementioned UCLA. However, Peter's main motivation, his driver, has been to address social ills by starting new enterprises, using his entrepreneurial skills and his immense imagination to help cure the world. Peter's wife, Sarah, is one smart lady. They have a delightful family. And Peter is a keen biker and has a fascinating collection of movie cameras and paraphernalia. Peter Samuelson, welcome to the EMJ podcast. That's such an amazing build-up. 
uh, I think you must be talking about someone else. I will do my best to emulate whoever that person is that you described. <laughs> well, if I tell you that they say the secret to writing is editing, I started off with about, you know, we've known each other a long time, Peter, and I knew some of this stuff, but boy, I had to edit it down. So let's start with your university days and how you ended up in the movie business. It should be no surprise given your family involvement, but I know your dad wanted you to have a backup plan. Tell us about that. I had a teacher uh, in year 10 in school called Mr. Lund. I'm sure he had a first name, but we weren't allowed to know his first name or possibly his first name was Mr. And Mr. Lund was my English teacher and he said, see me after school, uh, which is never a good thing. And uh, he, I remember he poked me in the chest with his finger and he said, now listen, if you work about twice as hard, you can go to a really good university. And I laughed at him and I said, I really don't think so, Mr. Lund. Um, my dad left school at 14. I actually don't think there is anyone in my entire wider family who has ever been to uni. And he laughed and he said, oh, well, it'll be even better then because uh, you'll be the first one. And um, he was right. I did work I don't know, about twice as hard, but I certainly worked harder. And he was an extraordinary mentor and coach and uh, teacher. And um, I got that telegram um, that said, congratulations, full scholarship, Emmanuel College, Cambridge. The great thing was that you, that you get the telegram in January and uh, you're not allowed to go until October. So you actually are forced to take a gap year. And my gap year, I met the uh, producer of a film that was about to be made in Le Mans, France, in the, in the county of Sartre, uh, in northwestern France, and near Chartres, where the cathedral is. Uh, I, who knew a lot about uh, medieval English and French literature and virtually nothing about life uh, in 1969, uh, which it was then, I, I found myself in this sleepy little French town, electrified by the arrival of Steve McQueen and his entourage. And I had a fine old time for 10 months and then got in my car and drove to Cambridge, where overnight I was uh, an undergraduate who had to say grace before meals in Latin and all that kind of uh, traditional stuff. More different worlds one could not imagine. So I want to get into the serious stuff, Peter. There's a Jewish idiom, tikkun olam, which I think drives you. Can you share with the audience who are not familiar with that phrase what it means and the role it's played in your life? Well, uh, tikkun olam means to heal the world. And really, it's a whole philosophy of living, which we're all told uh, sort of from the age of 12 and a half onwards, uh, uh, that you define the value of your life by whether you lift up your world or whether you drag it down. And I actually, the older I get, and I'm now considerably old, uh, I think it's completely true. And I realize 
that not only the greatest joys that I've had, but actually what I really value in looking back at a potential legacy. Well, you know, there's the people you've raised, your children, your grandchildren and all of that. But then you get into, you know, did I create anything? Yep, 26 films. So that means something. A few of them are good, at least. Uh, and then you get into what is arguably as important as anything, which is, did I help anybody? Is anybody's life, is the life of any subset of humanity in any way lifted up by what I did? And the skills of a film producer are intrinsically entrepreneurial. You're always doing a, a new thing and applying sort of skills you've honed elsewhere, call it pattern recognition, but to a whole new problem. Turns out you can take those skills sideways, that toolkit, and you can address an unmet need in society and damn well do something about it. And um, mostly it works because you, you know, you do it the way you would make a film. So, Peter, you're in Los Angeles and you hear about a child who's dealing with a wretched disease and that led to the origin of the Starlight Foundation. Set the scene for us, if you will, and then maybe talk to us about how those humble beginnings take us to where the charity is today. Well, um, I don't really know how Starlight grew so big. Uh, we, about um, three, four years ago, when we were coming up on the 40th anniversary, we asked people in each country to go back through the tax forms and work out how much money have we raised in those 40 years. And the answer came back a little over a billion dollars with a B. So um, it's the work of thousands of people. But where it started was with the little germ of an idea. My cousin was still living in England and I had already moved to the United States. And um, she was making the beginnings of a career as an actress. And she went in costume with the rest of the cast of a film called Arabian Adventure to tour Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital and make nice with the patients. And a little boy there, she made the mistake, I suppose, of asking what would make you really happy, Sean. And Sean, quick as a flash, age 10-ish, said, oh, that's easy. I want to go to Disneyland. And I remember Emma phoning me and saying, now what do we do? Because this was not an inconsiderable thing because he was, you know, terminally ill. And uh, indeed, the mum, Brenda, and her son, Sean, flew the pond, came to Los Angeles, uh, we didn't think we should put them in a hotel. So they moved into my apartment. It was back um, when I was single um, and Emma moved in as well. And we did two weeks of everything you probably shouldn't do with a terminally ill child. And he had an extraordinarily wonderful time, enjoyed the heck out of it. And so did his mum. And we realized this is actually as much a gift to her because she will have something happy to remember. And we felt we had done something really important. It wasn't that difficult to do. 
So I called a meeting. You know, I'm a film producer. We call meetings. It's our best thing. And I stood at the end of the conference table at Interscope Productions and I said, so I think, you know, there must be other sick kids, ill kids in, in, in the world. Why don't we find them probably through the hospitals and so forth? And a few times a year, you know, five times a year, something ambitious like that, we'll um, ask them what would make them happy and then we'll do it. So, um, I mean, it, it, it's amazing. And uh, it's an amazing achievement for you, for Emma Sams, for having the um, the foresight to, to do that. And and also to open your home to effectively strangers and and people who are, you know, the dynamics would be very, very difficult. So I just want people to dwell on what you've said. But during the growth of Starlight, there was an observation as to how sick children responded to the promise of something good happening in their lives. And and I reflect back on the thing that led to us coming together, the young lady at, at Cedars that I was involved in, in her care, and how her personality changed, and how her... Uh, her physical condition changed. Her blood, her blood numbers changed. I remember you and I talking about it. Tie that together with a certain Mr. Steven Spielberg and Stormy Norman, General Norman Schwarzkopf. All that led to the second phrase from the nursery rhyme. You had starlight, then came starbright. Talk us through. So we, from the very beginnings of starlight, we as lay people we would observe that there seemed to be some strange relationship between mental health, mental attitude on the one hand, and the physiological markers of illness um, on the other. So we would, for example, a little boy would say, I want to go to Disney World. And we'd say, well, you can't travel because your T-cell count is too low. Um, so let's talk about a different wish. What else would make you happy? And on occasion, the little boy would say, I don't want any other wish. I just want to go to Disney World because I've been reading about Epcot and this and that. And we'd say, well, if your T-cell count comes up, you'll go. And if not, let's talk about, you know, would you like a, a computer? What? Let's talk about wish number two. And son of a gun... A couple of weeks later, the doctors are saying to us, his T-cell count has mysteriously zoomed upwards and is near normal. And if you want to go back to the uh, Orlando situation, you could do that because he's cleared to fly. And we never really, we used to say, don't tell anybody about it because they'll think we're like Shirley MacLaine or it's like, laying on crystals or laying on hands or something. And we never wanted um, to sort of delve into that area or make any claim. All of a sudden, and I'm very much aware this is an audience of doctors and others in healthcare, all of a sudden, you blokes and you ladies caught up with what we already knew. And I start reading about this new field of psychoneuroimmunology that, you know, posits that the mind and physical health actually interact in both directions, that a, um, a person who is uh, with clinically depressed markers 
uh, is oftentimes, not always by any means, but is oftentimes um, 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 mentally depressed um, and vice versa. And so we started saying, okay, well, what we have to stop doing are spike wishes. A spike wish was that we sent the kid to with his family uh, on some wonderful trip or they met a celebrity and their T-cell count zoomed up to cope with that. But then it zoomed down again in a not helpful way once they went home. So we started saying, you can't meet a celebrity or go on a trip. First of all, you have to take a video camera on the trip. Uh, and secondly, if it's a celebrity sports figure or an actor or actress, whatever, um, they have to promise to be in touch with you once a month, um, you know, for at least a year. And um, so we sort of evened out and we moved more over to experiences and interventions that were the gift that went on giving. And that seemed to have a positive effect. And then what we did is we started hiring serious, sophisticated, highly qualified, academically credentialed medical researchers to come and have a look at what was going on. And they discovered all sorts of amazing things. For example, we had invented with Nintendo a thing called the Fun Center. And the Fun Center, in its original version, it's it's now on about Mark 10. But back at the beginning of it, in the early 90s, it was a box strapped onto one of those hospital trolleys that go over a bed so someone can have their lunch. But instead of the tray, it had the box, and the box had in it um, a television monitor and a Nintendo game, and you could get the Disney Channel on it, and you could play, back then, VHS videos that were sort of helpful and suitable and happy, mostly musicals, as I remember. Um, and um, so that that that's what we did. Um, we noticed that there seemed to be an effect on the subjective perception of pain. And we started studying that, very clever, that the researchers jigged up a computer to measure the number of times that the child self-dosed micro doses of morphine or whatever analgesic it was uh, per hour before the trolley arrived while the trolley was over the bed and after it went away we thought we would have like a channel with vertical sides cut into a chart of number of clicks versus time on the clock it wasn't that at all there was a um, depressive effect on the number of clicks well before, maybe an hour, hour and a half before the trolley even came into the room because they knew it was coming at 10 o'clock. So by about half past eight, they're already looking forward to it. And the use of the morphine or whatever was falling. And then obviously very little was being used while they were playing a video game or watching you know, some Disney musical. Uh, and then it didn't go straight zooming back up to maximum analgesic after the trolley left. No vertical side on the channel. It, it gently came up because they were still, their head was still, you know, wrapped into their victories in the game or 
how wonderful the song was or whatever. So we learned a lot from that and we started publishing the literature in psychoneuroimmunology. And at a certain point, the researchers started, you know, seeking us out to come and study. And at one point, there was so much research going on that we got a bit worried about it, that we were turning our kids into guinea pigs. So we backed off a little bit. Um, but yes, it's a thing. It's serious. Um, once upon a time, we used to give doctors um, pretend prescription charts on which they could choose from the eight psychosocial services and prescribe them as though they were a medicine, which I suppose they were, to their patients. So, um, you know, we did that and we grew exponentially, geographically, financially, uh, and in terms of how many kids and families we were helping. And then I got an introduction to Steven Spielberg and I pitched up at Amblin on the Universal Studios lot. And, you know, everything is done to scare the hell out of you. Uh, you don't give your collateral material to Mr. Spielberg. You leave that with me. Uh, you'll have exactly half an hour. He's got an ambassador coming on the hour, so you'll need to be gone. And good luck and in you go. And your first thing is you look at Steven and you think he looks exactly like Steven Spielberg. Uh, it was like a sort of out-of-body moment. And um, I'm telling him all about Starlight. And he's saying, well, what do you know about the internet? And I said, well, it's 1990. I know a little bit. Didn't Al Gore have something to do with it? He said, no, not really. It was more people than that. And we're, so we're talking and he said, you know, we could do something extraordinary. We could link kids together audio visually at great distances so that, first of all, all the immunocompromised kids could have community. They could even go to school through a robot in the classroom and they could see and be heard, not just with, you know, their home and their siblings and parents and so forth in between visits, but in addition, we could link kids dealing with the same situation of the same rough age. Um, we could link them hospital to hospital. So I'm looking at my watch and I'm thinking, I don't know what happened to the ambassador, but I've been in here an hour now. And then I look a bit later and I think I've been in here 90 minutes. And eventually he said, all right, what do you want me to do? And I said, right, it's a new charity. We'll call it. Starbright, because I thought Starlight, Starbright, First Star. So he said, okay, and what will I be? And I said, you be the chairman. I'll be the president. We'll work together and put a board together. We'll raise a bit of money. He said to me, I should give some money. There's no way that we can ask people for money if I don't give first. What do you think I should give? And I said, Stephen, I don't think God put me on the earth to tell Steven Spielberg how philanthropic he should be. I said, why don't you give something moderately painful? So he said, well, give me a number. And I said, I'm not going to give you a number. Think of a number. I don't know what's moderately painful for you. He said, no, just throw out a number. I can either say yes or no. And I said, all right, um, two, two and a half million dollars. I really had no idea what I was talking about. And I saw his mouth say, okay. And I sort of came, he gave me a hug and I came out of his office and I went and hid behind a tree 
and I had one of those big old cell phones and I phoned my um, wife. I was married by then. And um, I said to Sarah, I, I've just kind of, I think I'm hallucinating. I think I just had well over an hour and a half with Steven Spielberg. I think it's a new charity that we're doing. And he's just pledged two and a half million dollars. And I think I'm out of my mind. And there was a silence. And my wife, Sarah, said, you don't sound safe to drive. Tell me where you are and I'll come and get you, which she did. And um, that was the beginning of Starbright. And Schwarzkopf? Well, the problem with Stephen is he's shy, which seems very counterintuitive, but he actually didn't feel comfortable asking people for money. So we had a hilarious conversation about who is the bravest man in the world. And we decided that storming Norman, General Norman Schwarzkopf of the United States Army, um, he, we decided he is the bravest man in the world because he just won the Gulf War. And um, so we wrote a letter asking if uh, he would meet with me, which a message came back and said, yes pitch up in Orlando and you will meet. So I get in the elevator in Orlando and he's in a penthouse and halfway up the lift stops dead with a judder and a little disembodied voice says, could you please hold your driver's license up to the camera, which I do. And eventually they cleared me and I go up and I go in his office. First thing you notice is he was, you know, well into the six foot something. I mean, he was a huge man, but also larger than life. And I said, so what we're doing is we're colliding together different fields of expertise who would never, ever meet. You know, we've got our medical suite of experts, oncologists and hematologists and child psychiatrists and psychologists and all the rest of it, and all the hospital administrative people. And then we've got a second group, uh, which is the Silicon Valley mob, which is long line specialists, software writers, hardware inventors, and all of them. And then we've got, you know, our media creative people, writers, actors, dancers, um, uh, directors, uh, and so forth from film and television and theater. And um, we are the generalists in the middle, and we keep them focused on mission. And if you would join us, we will do that. I didn't say, and you'll be the one asking people for money, uh, although that's what turned out to be, and he was brilliant at it. Well, it's an amazing story, but you weren't finished with that particular nursery rhyme. And, uh, of course, First Star. Tell folks listening in about First Star, uh, because that was built to address the rights of children. Tell us about the initial inspiration and you think about it, the rights of children. Why do you need it? That's bizarre. That's berserk. What There was an inspiration for that. And then please introduce our listeners to the Academy concept, how it got started, what the goals were and where you are now. And the reason for that is I want people listening in to this amazing man who's dedicated his life to improving the lives of others, especially children. And I'd like everyone listening in to do something to help. Doesn't mean give money, although maybe it does, but maybe, and I have a coming plan, Peter. 
maybe they can help in other ways. So take us on the first star journey. So in about um, 1999, I was thinking there's people in Starlight who I think are waiting for me to die so that they can apply leadership. And some of them are whip smart and fantastic human beings. And I announced in one year, I will no longer be your chairman. And so you better get yourselves organized for who's going to run this thing and who's going to be at the top of the pyramid because I'm going to move on. And I think in the end, it was a very good decision. I'm still on the board. I'm like the only person there from the beginning. I'm the uh, uh, I'm I'm exempt from term limits because I'm supposed to be the one now all these years later who when someone suggests some wizard scheme, I can say, oh, yeah, we tried that in the late 1990s. It didn't work. Let me tell you why you should think very carefully about before doing that. So um, I thought I, I I will free up time and maybe I've got another one or two of these things in me because I'm nothing if not a pro-social entrepreneur. I think that's, you know, what I'm supposed to do on the earth is new solutions for old problems. So I read two documents, one of which was the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. And, you know, it says children should have a name. Um, they shouldn't have to be slaves. They're entitled to health care and an education and all this self-evident stuff. And then um, it says that there's 180 countries in the world, in the UN, and all but two have signed this thing. And back then, one of them was Somalia because there was no central government. They've since signed it. And the one that has never signed it was the United States of America. And I thought, well, that's bizarre. I live in America. I have my double citizenship. I'm proud of being an American. And, uh, you know, most of the time, some of the time. Uh, and um, I thought, I've never met an American who doesn't want to do what's best for children. So how can this damn thing not have been signed? And then I read the the UNICEF World Biennial Survey, where they measure the countries of the world by the welfare um, markers of their children. And um, the last two, the worst two, were the United Kingdom and the United States. And I thought, well, you know, that's allowing for GNP. But it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, what nobody help much hates children. So I started a year of research. I think what you do before you dare do something new is you better make sure someone's not already doing it. And you need to develop your blue sky hypothesis elegantly and in detail, which I did. And I discovered that the worst of the worst of the worst was looked after children or in the United States, um, that would be foster kids or in yeah. Canada, crown wards. And um, I realized, well, it's it's raving mad, isn't it? It's in the United States, um, half a million kids in foster care. In the United Kingdom, it's uh, almost exactly 100,000. Um, so it's a big issue. And the billions and billions of pounds and dollars spent dealing with the monstrous cost of the thing 
the system, the foster care system, but also dealing with how rotten the outcomes are, you know, the generational oftentimes repetition, about half the time of abuse and neglect, which results in yet more kids, exponentially more in foster care. So the whole thing is a hiding to nowhere. And then you think about all the humane values and how miserable abuse and neglect make kids because then they carry for the whole rest of their life, usually um, PTSD and and all sorts of bad, um, you know, back to psychoneuroimmunology. If you're miserable, you tend to get ill and so forth. So I thought, well, what do we do? What do we do? How do you put a dent in it? And I thought, well, I think it's education because I also discovered that less than half of kids in years 9 through 13, uh, American grades 9 through 12, less than half were graduating from school or getting their GCSEs. So virtually none of them went to university. In the United States, less than 9% of foster kids. In the United Kingdom, it's even worse, less than 6%. So I thought, well, how would we... These are kids who've never even been to a university. They don't even know what it is. And they tend to be in impoverished, rotten schools with not very good teachers. What do we do? So I took myself off and I got a meeting with the vice chancellor, Gene Block. He's still in charge at UCLA. To this day, he thinks it's because I thought it was a fine university, which is true. But actually, it was because I lived down the road and I thought, well, I might as well start. They're all going to say no, but I might as well start with the closest one. So I drove up the hill um, and went and met with Gene Block. And I said, I'm here to persuade you to allow me to house, educate and encourage years nine through 12, grades nine through 12, foster kids in the middle of your campus. Please say yes. And he said, why? And I said, well, my hypothesis is they've never met anybody excellent. Even the charismatic, older, young adults near them tend to be negative figures in their life, which is why the outcomes are so poor. But what if we surrounded them with high achieving undergraduate and grad students and, and, and academics and teachers and, and, and sports and, and the environment of a, a thriving university that I know and love so well, studied here myself. And anyway, we talked for quite a long time, at the end of which he stood up and he said, I've kept the people out in the waiting room waiting so long, so we better pull this meeting. But can you come back next week? Let's talk about the details. But I'm minded to say yes. I don't know how we do it. He said, where are we going to get the money? And I said, I think intuitively, it's a very strong blue sky hypothesis. I think we can pitch the heck out of this. We'll get the money. If we build it, they will fund. And they did. So we we put committees together. We worked out how to do it pretty much on the back of an envelope. So um, 2013, we invited an initial cohort of 15 young ladies and 15 young men all rising ninth graders going into year nine. And we housed and educated and encouraged them on the campus of UCLA. And we hired a staff and we thought, well, what do we have for the curriculum? We thought, well, 
One third has to be academic because they're all way behind, almost all of them. And we said one third should be life skills because there was no grown up. Everything from how to brush your teeth to financial literacy to sex ed. And then the last third is psychosocial. It's removal of glass ceiling. It's inculcation of ambition. It's for the kid who seems to be interested in science is taking him off to the nanotechnology lab and having him look through an electron microscope and say, oh, my goodness. So um, it worked just a few weeks in. It was like watching flowers grow. And what we realized is there's nothing the matter with these kids. If you look at the bell curve of their IQ, it's no different than any other 30 kids or in the United States, any other half a million kids or in the UK, any other 99,000 kids. They've been poorly educated. They've been discouraged. They're carrying the scars mentally and in some cases physically of abuse and neglect. But, you know, four years later, honest to God, instead of that 9%, less than 9% of the kids going off to colleges and universities, we got 87% of first-star kids into post-secondary education, colleges and universities, about half to a two-year course and half to a four-year to get a bachelor's. That stat, even with the COVID years, has held up. You know, we've been at it so many years now. We have our graduates who often go to graduate school, but we have doctors, we have accountants, we have scientists, we have dancers and writers and journalists and all the rest of it, a couple of architects, as I remember it. Um, it's a huge success. We have 14 academies across the United States and so far three in the United Kingdom. Um, we're now expanding to Stoke-on-Trent to the University of Staffordshire. We're going to expand to Cambridge University and the University of Exeter. That's what's up next. And in the United States, we have some new ones. We've even started getting money now from government. So there you go. Starlight, star bright, first star. So um, the, the reason I wanted you to go into detail is that the people who are listening in as, as physicians, mostly, we have other non-medical people who listen, they went to university. Call your university. Tell them about this amazing, amazing uh, process and introduce them to First Star because the more academies we have and the more kids who do not lead a, 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 a recapitulation of the, the life that led them to where they are, instead become positive forces in society. And it's, it's again, it's this concept of tikkun olam, healing the world, making the world a better place. So, Peter... Um, you, you, uh, I've got three questions. From, well, I've got 300 questions remaining, but I'm only going to be able to get three in. Um, briefly tell us about something that you did that wasn't uh, involving children. Tell folks about EDAR. What is EDAR and uh, what have you done with it? So EDAR stands for Everyone Deserves a Roof, which I think is a truth, a human truth. I came out of a restaurant after a business breakfast in Los Angeles and a tall bloke kind of inserted himself with his palm up and I gave him money and I sort of went off at a fast walk and I sat in my car 
I thought, how can I be scared and intimidated? This is ridiculous, isn't it? But I was. And I decided, you know, what do we do um, in leadership? If you're scared of something, lean into it. If it isn't going to kill you, it will make you stronger. So I did um, 65 interviews on my bicycle on the weekends with unhoused homeless people. And I asked them two broad sets of questions. How do you get money? And, and where do you sleep? And eventually the epiphany was that an old lady said, come with me. And she sort of pulled me by the sleeve. And she said, I'll show you where I sleep. And we go in the bushes off of the San Diego freeway on the Caltrans land. And there is a gigantic cardboard box. And on the side in foot high letters, it says Sub-Zero. And I thought, oh, so this is the epiphany because I got the refrigerator and this poor dear is living in the cardboard box. So I tried to design a building and I couldn't do that. So I hired an architect, a space planner and a budgeter. And I thought we'll build a hundred bed dormitory. And when we got that all priced out, it was $5 million, which was fine, except if you divided it by 100 beds, it meant it was costing $50,000 a bed. And there's 100,000 people in Los Angeles County sleeping rough. So that would be $5 billion. And that only takes care of Los Angeles. And furthermore, some of them won't go, a few. So I thought, well, for God's sake, let's reverse engineer it. What would be the best that we could do with $800? It's not going to be a nice fluffy bed in an apartment, but maybe it could be better than a damp cardboard box on a rainy night. So I could, I thought it's got wheels. You push it around, but it unfolds into a seven foot long cot. I took myself off to an emergency room and I said, when homeless people come in, what kills them? And the doctor who I, I met with said mostly pneumonia because they lie on the ground and they get a bug in their nose and then it goes down into their lungs and they don't have medical care and then they get pneumonia and we get them and they die. So um, I couldn't design this. I have the spatial design ability of a newt, but I thought, where in LA do they know that stuff? I found the Pasadena Art Center College of Design where they train people to design you know, automobiles and, and, and um, any kind of mechanical or electronic anything. And I took myself up and I met with Dean Korshek, it was back then. And I said, if I put up a little bit of money, I think it was like $2,500, um, could we have a competition for the best design for this thing? And in the daytime, you push it around, it's got four wheels, but then you unfold it and it's now a seven foot cot off the ground with two, four windows and two doors. And it has to cost, you know, less than a thousand dollars. It ended up being about eight hundred dollars. And he said, we can. And teams of their students built these cardboard one sixth scale maquettes. And then we got uh, a factory. Oh, and he said to me, what do you want to call it? And I said, I have no idea. Um, I thought, I can't call it I See Tonight, which would be the next bit of the children's rhyme. It doesn't work. Um, so he said, well, everyone deserves a roof. I said, you're right. Everyone deserves a roof. E-D-A-R. 
So if you want to have a look, it's edar, E-D-A-R.org. All donations welcome. Every $800, another old lady doesn't sleep on, on, on the ground under the, uh, you know, the motorway bridge. And we've got hundreds and hundreds of them, mostly in the Sun Belt in the United States. Haven't got any in the United Kingdom yet, but we will. They're coming. And um, I like to say on a 10 scale, if a nice fluffy bed in an apartment is a 10, and if the damp cardboard box on a rainy night is a zero, okay, we're a five. Um, but it's a whole hell of a lot better than the cardboard box. And on the day, I, you know, sometimes I meet with the mayor of a city and they say, well, we want them all in housing. And I say, well, God bless. And on the day that you get everyone who will come into a nice fluffy bed, I pledge we will collect up the EDARs and we will recycle the metal. There will never be taxpayer will to spend that kind of money, $50,000 a head, given that there's about a million unhoused people in the United States and growing and growing. I mean, you know, the COVID has thrown, you know, a single mum with a small kid who was a waitress and then they closed the restaurant because of the COVID and she became unhoused. You know, it's not her fault. Um, people think, well, there are no children um, who who are unhoused. It's completely untrue. Well, um, Peter, my final question. If there was some Hollywood magic and, you know, working with Spielberg, a genie appeared, what three wishes to make the world a better place would Peter Samuelson uh, have? So... I suppose I would, with the first wish, have people grow up feeling how much they have in common with other people, whether they're different. I think if you think of that um, picture that was taken by Voyager, the spacecraft when it swooped around the moon before we'd actually even landed, and it's called Earthscape. You can Google it, Earthscape, one word. And it's just simply the horizon is the gray moon and floating off in space is the blue marble. That's Earth, but it looks as though it's only about a centimeter across because of the perspective. I wish people could hold that in their head. We need to get back to how small the planet is and how we need to empathize and help each other because, you know, a man never stood so tall as when he reaches down to hold the hand of a child in need. So I guess my first wish would be for widespread and an, an epidemic of empathy. That's a very all-encompassing wish, actually. It probably covers every other ill, doesn't it? Well, I think so. I mean, what are our challenges? We have global warming. I suppose the second wish would be that scientists and politicians and public will actually do what needs to be done to get us well below 1.5 degrees warming by 2035? Why can we not use our ingenuity and our science and turn it back? So that, I suppose, would be my second one. And do you have a third one? I, I, I do. I do. I've been doing the third wish since I was a little boy when it first dawned on me, or maybe some uncle told me, this is what you always have as your third wish which is to have an unlimited number of extra wishes. I can tell you when, when, when the third wish comes true, 
is I have these ideas, these blue sky hypothesis needs more research. I need my Medici, my new Medici to say, come and have lunch with me. You can come to my club. You can come to my home. We'll go to a restaurant. Tell me what are you thinking is next for you? Because I sort of think you've managed to do Starlight and Starbright and First Star and Edar and Aspire and a few others that we never talked about. And I have a film company that's called Filmco Media, P-H-I-L-M-C-O media.com, filmcomedia.com, where we only make films to make the world a better place. Commercial, so we get lots of eyeballs and earlobes, uh, 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 but also... Um, very pro-social. We call them double bottom line film and television. So that, that you know, always needs help. But so do First Star and EDAR and Starlight and so forth. Um, so uh, I'm reaching out through the ether here to the new Medici. Um, pitch him with me. It's an awful lot of fun. Uh, it's great joy. It's how you get your grandchildren motivated um you get them involved in your philanthropy peter um uh, i've used uh one uh, hebraic expression tikkun olam there's another that has entered general parlance in many countries mensch a mensch is a human being or the very perfection of a human being peter samuelson you are a mensch thank you for taking the time to speak to us and i know that this is a personally difficult time for you, so sending sending love and hugs uh, for that. Thank you for your inquiring mind. Thank you for your boundless energy, enthusiasm, and imagination. And thank you for taking your ideas and making them real. Uh, so thank you, Peter, for joining us. Well, I, I back at you. You're a mensch as well. You're my dear friend. And, you know, we, we met over helping... Uh, a young girl who was seriously ill and we we did make her and her parents and siblings happy and you and I did that together and our relationship has now gone on decades more than either you or I would want to remember and you do make the world a better place so um, back at you my friend well folks sadly that's all we have time for today um Please review the show notes and we're going to put up there the links to the things that Peter is up to. And please, please, please consider doing something because if everyone does something together, we all do a lot. And I can tell you from my personal experience of helping uh, in, in um, the various enterprises that Peter has started in a small way, two people benefit, the person you're helping and you because it feels fantastic. So I'm sure you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe for our weekly shows. Please tell your friends and like us on social media. Until our next EMJ podcast every Friday, this is your host, Jonathan Sakia. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious, and be kind. Bye for now. Bye for now.